Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Like Mark Twain, I'm always embarrassed when people compliment me. I feel they're not saying enough. <laughs> Thank you, Don, for the very warm uh, welcome. Thank you, Popeye, for inviting me, for giving me the privilege of being a service. And before I tell you my name, I'll spell it for you. It's A-J-I-T, pronounced Ajit. It's not Ajet. It's not Ashit or any of that stuff. <laughs> I've been given about 99 versions to my name. What a beautiful crowd. Put my glasses on so I can see you. So unlike my very first meeting in Detroit, Michigan, actually a suburb of it, was a dark, dingy room, six women, average age, deceased. At least that. <laughs> they were beautiful like you. About my age that I am today just seems so alien to me to walk into something called Al-Anon to get someone sober. At least that's what I thought. I think Al-Anon is a con job. Uh, it says it's for those people who are affected by someone else's drinking. I think it should say those people are affected by their own thinking, uh, the stinking thinking. I cannot say, I do not refer to the alcoholic in my life, which is now my former wife, uh, as my qualifier. Uh, if you read the Al-Anon literature, I think the word qualifier is not listed any place in there. I came here because I was affected by my own thinking, my own obsession over other people's actions. And that started when I was born, I think, people-pleasing. I think when I came out of the womb, I told the doctor, don't slap me, I'll cry for you. (laughs) The name is uh, Indian in origin. It's it's not the casino kind Indian. It's the quickie mark kind, as they say. Yes, unfortunately, I don't own any shell gas stations. I don't have a call service. I don't write software. I'm not an engineer or a doctor. I do wear the spikes on my golf shoes on the inside. So I feel I'll tease. I want to greet my friends in Alanon. Ni Alanon's in here. And I'll salute you. I won't do the Alanon salutes. Any recovering or otherwise alcoholics in here, I welcome you as well. And if you are double members, uh, I'll give you the salute. You must be uh, schizophrenic. You must nudge yourself when you're hearing stuff. I'm teasing. I heard an AA speaker by the name of Polly. She said, you strip away the alcoholic and you've got a flaming Al-Anon. So welcome. You belong here. Are there any former Alateens or Alateens in this room today? If you are a very special... Uh, thank you to you for being here and, and blessings because I have sp- uh, been an um, Alateen sponsor and I tell you, I'm always s- amazed and surprised at what this program is capable of in transforming those kids into into good citizens of society because I heard stories where kids said, my father, and he's talking, he's telling a baseball score, he said, my father would pick me up and throw me against the window, and no emotion, no sadness, just stayed the way it was. So I'm glad to be here. I uh, cannot tell you exactly when I walked into the meetings of Al-Anon, but I can tell you to the moment when she walked into AA, May 25th, 1983, 8.02 p.m. <laughs> so that tells you where my head was. And I love what Don said about practicing the program. Um, I read someplace that we don't work this program, we practice it. And, and practice makes you perfect, but in this case, thank God it doesn't make you perfect, because I'd be walking around like a castrated angel and would not be able to identify with any of you, and you wouldn't be able to identify with me either. So it is practicing these principles, practicing this program, and part of what I'm doing today, thanks to uh, Popeye asking me to be here, the privilege of being a service uh, Abraham Lincoln said, um, better to keep your mouth shut and be thought of as a fool than to open it and, and remove all doubt. So I'm going to remove all doubt because I think I'm amongst fools, uh, and which is okay because there's an ancient Indian saying that said, a fool is no longer a fool when he realizes he's a fool and a wise man is no longer wise. See, they confuse you when he thinks he's wise. So you're neither wise nor a fool. That's why it's progress, not perfection. I'm so grateful for that. 
I came in the rooms of Al-Anon in 1980. Uh, I can't remember when, so I just say December is my, because it was late fall. It was uh, a cold evening. I remember that much. And I came in because I was not, they say, if you're, uh, if you're bothered, but I wasn't bothered, pardon the expression, I was pissed uh, at the drinking that was going on. I really didn't think drinking was really the issue in retrospect. Uh, I was bothered. I was, I was not bothered. I was embarrassed by what was going on. Because, see, I grew up in a home. I grew up in a home where the mantra was, what will they say? So, let's say it came in uh, somewhere around 1980. And so, since, as they say, I've heard AA speakers say, thanks to the God of my understanding, the big book of AA and my sponsor, I haven't had a drink since whenever. Thanks to the big book of Al-Anon, my sponsor, and a God of my understanding, I have not had one obsessive thought since 1980, and I have... <laughs> I take it you don't believe me, and I understand. <laughs> and I'll obsess over that. <laughs> you know, if, Alan, if thinking were a disease, uh, I'd be slipping all the time in the way my mind works. So I'm grateful that I keep coming back. It's, it's been a long journey, and it, it, hasn't, it did not really hit me till 1997. I, I started in 80. But I was, as St. Francis would say, I was more into orthodoxy, which is right doctrine. I knew the steps. I could read them back and forth. I could philosophize on them. I could talk about the concepts really well. But I wasn't into orthopraxy, which is practicing the program, practicing the steps, doing the footwork. Because I could talk the talk, but I wasn't walking the walk. And I didn't realize that because... I slid into service, which makes made me feel, I won't speak for the others, but made me feel like I was working a wonderful program. I use the word work here. Because people come up to me, oh, you work such a great program. You, you're into service. I was intergroup rep, district rep, world service rep. You name it, every rep that could happen. I was secretary, treasurer. I was going to meeting and uh, sponsoring people, and I was leading meetings, and I was asked to speak at conferences and stuff like that. So I really thought I was hot, you know what, uh, that I was working this great program, and wow. I didn't realize that what I had not done is gone into the darkness of the fourth step. I had not really dug deep into who I was all, what, what I was all about, because I had surrounded myself with, with, with the packaging rather than the substance. And as I said, the, the embarrassing part, because when you grow up in a house, we say, what will they say? I developed a sense of wariness that I was being watched all the time for some reason, that people had no lives of their own, that they were focused on my life, and I was being judged not by just who I was, but the company I kept. So when my then wife got drunk or acted crazy in, in her stupor, I was more embarrassed by that because of the snicker I saw on people's faces or the smiles or friends making comments and what have you. So it's very, very embarrassing. And I just didn't want her to not drink. I just wanted her to drink two glasses of white wine, specifically Chardonnay, because the third glass was where it tipped over. And, you know, the problem was she was not the problem. If you ask me today, is alcoholism a disease? And I'll say, I really don't know and I don't care. It's what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't know and I don't care. Because, <laughs> because the problem was my obsession with behavior. The, uh, so the, the problem was obsession with behavior. We'd go, to, we'd go to dinner someplace and my friends would say, What's your problem? I'd say she's got mozzarella on her eyelids, she's got pepperoni on her cheeks, and she's slobbering all over the place, and you're asking me, what's my problem? And they said, she's having a great time. And she was. I was the idiot who was so focused on what was going on. Now, you might, just, for a, just to give you a brief introduction as to what, how I ended up being with an alcoholic in, California, in, in Detroit, uh, I was born in a home in, in Bombay, India, and when I finished my school and I graduated, did all my work, I walked up the mountain in my loins 
underwear and my turban. Never worn that. It's a bad visual. <laughs> and I asked my guru, O oh, Great One, how do I seek serenity? And he said, go to Detroit, Michigan and join Al-Anon. I'm just saying that for effect. So I left the shores of Bombay, India in May of 1974, warned by well-meaning friends and families that do not get involved with American women. <laughs> and I said, why? They said, because they drink and smoke in the open like men do. Translation, Indian women are discreet. They do it behind closed doors. <laughs> so I didn't care for the fact that the American woman smoked, but I loved the fact that she drank because they say candies, dandy, and liquors quicker. It made my progress in an evening extremely cost-effective and expedient. <laughs> Little did I know I was uh, about to embark on a journey that would just be a very transformative process, and I'm very, very grateful for that. So I don't refer to the alcoholic in my life as my qualifier. I refer to her as the angel who brought me into this program. Because every encounter has, if I read in retrospect, has been a spiritual encounter. It's just that I did not recognize it at the time. It was my God guiding me. And I don't have a God of any understanding, meaning I don't understand God. I just appreciate the mystery. And that's good enough for me. And that's what the third step allows me to do. I was so hung up on God as we understand him. So understand whatever you want to understand because it's beyond concept. I think the Zen Buddhists have a wonderful saying. They say, if you meet the Buddha, kill him because it's a mental construct. It's anything I think of as a mental construct. So it's beyond me, but there was something guiding me, and I didn't know why or what, but I'm so grateful that I was guided into the 12 steps of Al-Anon, and thank God that there were alcoholics ahead who actually gave us those 12 steps and the people beyond and beyond and beyond and beyond. I've, a, I've really come across priests. My, my, my present wife uh, is, a, is, a, is of Greek ancestry, and she's Greek from Greece, and uh, we go to church at the Assumption Church in Long Beach. It's a Greek church. And the priest there had invited a, past, a priest from um, Massachusetts who was Australian, but he was Greek Orthodox. And he came and spoke on forgiveness. And when he was done, I walked up to him and I said, you know, what you were talking about sounded more like 12 steps of the Gita. He said, Oh, all wisdom is universal, he said, but I don't, I'm not an alcoholic, but I go to AA meetings. And I said, why? He said, because I find more spirituality in an AA meeting than I do in my own church, because in AA they recognize their brokenness, and they know that there is God to be there, and there's no uh, religion drilled into you. I read uh, Richard Rohr, he's written a book called the spirituality of the 12 steps, breathing underwater. And in that, he talks about the same thing, finding spirituality in AA meetings than in the own church. And it's fascinating that you find people of the cloth actually finding more spirituality in these programs. So I'm deeply humbled and grateful to the alcoholics in my life who gave us this program of Al-Anon as well. So it's derivative of that. And for that, I truly, truly am grateful. I don't hold any alcoholic in in my life or otherwise, in sheer condemnation, I, I view with compassion, love, and gratitude. And, that, and I'm grateful for that, that I have that experience. But anyway, so I come out here and I meet, uh, decide that I'm going to meet someone who is quicker with liquor. And I, used to, I went to work for Xerox and I used to go to a bar with the boys called Yesterdays to find my soulmate du jour. <laughs> you recognize that, right? <laughs> And uh, I wasn't very adventurous, except I would invite the young ladies to go with me to a wonderful place called Greek Town, which was an adventure for people in Detroit. Greek Town was a little enclave within uh, Detroit. It was very safe because it was policed by the Greek mafia. So, <laughs> and in those days, back in the 70s, uh, you could get a four-course meal for about 25 bucks, and it included an elixir called Roditas wine. Roditas wine had the magical quality of transforming an absolute stranger into the most intimate of associates, uh, persons. <laughs> so, 
when I met my wife and, and, and she turned out to be alcoholic, I said, oh my God, we all know scary a beam. Alcoholic, no, don't waste your time. Alcoholic, don't waste your time. When I met you, your beam took off and uh, I, my beam said, here's the woman I'll make a me- uh, excuses for, tell her lies, met damaged relationships and pay her bills, blah, blah, blah. And yours took off and you said, here's the idiot who's going to do it all for me. Let's get married. And she said, no. She said, if you, uh, if, I said, I met all those women and I didn't marry any of them because they didn't have the beans. She said, if you had married one of them, you would have driven them to drink too, like you did me. So she owes me a debt of gratitude because she found AA. So life was wonderful for about 15 minutes. We met because I suffer from a disease called image management because of the what will they say, just ingrained in me, what will they say. Image management is I may feel like crap, but I got to look good. Because you're judging me based on how I look, walk, talk, and the company I keep. That's what's going on in my head at the time. And I was invited to a party by my boss, and I was seeing a woman that did not fit the image I wanted to. God is a sense of humor, man, I tell you. So I decided to look for the right image, and the right image showed up in the form of this woman at a student hangout called TJ's at the university. I was a part-time lecturer there. And she came up, and my beam took off, and her beam took off, and I asked her out. And she said, you're the first patron I've decided to go out with. And I walked out feeling so wonderful, not realizing that this was the beginning of a phenomenal journey. So we went out to dinner one evening before the party, and uh, warnings were happening. The flags were going up, because normally when I went out to dinner with a woman, I listened with an open mind, in one ear, out the other. Because I don't multitask. I see the men identify with them, the women know. So when a guy's nodding and your first or second date, he's not really listening to you. <laughs> he's just wondering, how am I going to get her from here to there? But, but in this case, it was scary. I was actually indulging in intellectual intercourse with this woman. For about three hours, I should have left at the restaurant and gone away. But no, we decided to go out. And we went to this party, and warning number two showed up. His name was George. And he said, how long have you and Susan been together? Eight, nine years? I said, George, I just met this woman two weeks ago. So he said, oh, you look so comfortable together. Now, my only time I give advice from uh, the podium is to say, if you're that comfortable on your first date with your date, one of you needs to leave because the rocks in their head fit the holes in yours or vice versa. And I, Talking about advice, I saw the greatest definition of advice on a Dilbert comic. He said, advice is ignorance and arrogance disguised as helpfulness. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Anyway, we continued to see each other for a while. And and this is where the the thing started to take place. It was a midweek evening, and there was a knock on the door. And my wife, and I opened up the door, and this woman standing there with a lump on her head, and I said, what happened? She said, my mother beat me in an alcoholic rage. And the personalities I did not know existed in me, the knight in shining armor, the caring parent, whatever it was, a father figure, everything jumped out, and I said, you will not move in with that woman, you will move in with me. Now, a Hindu from Bombay, India, does not ask a Polish Catholic girl to move in with him. But that wasn't the scary part. The scary part was watching her God-fearing mother who disavowed sinful relationships like living together, actually helping her daughter move in with me. It was quite a sight watching them bring the stuff in. That should have been a warning, but I decided to stay put and uh, find my serenity even if it killed me in the process, which it almost did. Um, We lived together in blissful sin for about 15 minutes. (laughs) Doors would get banged, loud noises coming out of the bedroom, and I'm not even in there. (laughs) And I'm walking around saying, shh, what will the neighbors say, shh? They say, who the heck do you think you're, Prince Charles, you stuffed shirt, you can't even get angry. See, I didn't know feelings, because I had to protect an image. The feelings are deep inside, and I have no idea. Today I'm married to a woman who's all feelings in one way, because she has such a deep understanding of feelings. You know you have a problem when one of your sponsee calls you up and gives you condolences for when uh, Spock died. You know, Leonard Moore. he says, my condolences, because that was my hero. I said, a man says, no feelings, no emotion, reason only, logic. 
I remember coming from my men's group one time, and the men were talking about feelings. And I said, my God. And I'm driving, and I'm sipping on a can of Coke. And all of a sudden, my chest starts to well up inside. And I'm saying, oh, my God, I'm experiencing a feeling. But I'm not happy, happy. I'm not sad, sad. What's this feeling? And all of a sudden, carbon dioxide escapes me, and the feeling was gone. That's how clueless. See, (laughs) denial for me is progress. I'm usually clueless. Now, this is to give you the thing about denialists. I'll tell you a story that illustrates denial from cluelessness to denial. This guy goes to the doctor and he said, when I sit in my living room watching TV and my wife's in the kitchen, she cannot hear me. I think she's going deaf because I keep asking her what's for dinner and she does not respond. So the doctor says, I tell you what, what's the distance between the rooms? And he said about 11, 12 feet. He said, we'll start at 10 feet. You go home tonight, stand at 10 feet, and ask your wife what's to dinner. And you do that. So this guy goes home at 10 feet, at 9 feet, at 8 feet, at 7 feet, 6, finally gets to 1 foot. She turns and says, you moron, are you deaf? I've told you nine times it's spaghetti with meat sauce. Totally unaware of his own thing, and that's I'm totally unaware of my problems. I'm focused on the other person's problem. Anyway, so here I am with the feeling gone. I have no feelings in me. I'm angry, but I don't know I'm angry. I want to be very, very calm about this. So nothing's changing. Still the sky is screeching, door shutting, and decided we'll do the next indicated thing. We'll get married. <laughs> Everything will be okay. So we get married and moved into this little condo in Warren, Michigan. And I did not know that the half bathroom served as a personal bar. <laughs> I walk into this half bathroom and I open the cabinet, six or seven empty cans of beer would pop out. And I was so upset that they were not in the trash can. <laughs> I would go up to her and said, why didn't you put the empty cans in a trash can? She said, oh, and I said, what were they doing in the bathroom in the first place? And she said, Aunt Bunny came over and had a few beers. Aunt Bunny was my wife's uh, aunt. And I said, never questioned Aunt Bunny. Why would she take a six-pack into the bathroom? I mean, was she eliminating the middleman? I don't know. <laughs> and this I have not been able to solve. My friend came over and said, would you like a, I said, would you like a glass of wine? He said, sure. I reach into the cabinet, pull out this bottle of wine. It's got the cork, it's got the silver thing, it's got the red tag, but the bloody thing is empty. I'm shaking it, and I'm looking at it. I'm confused. I don't know if there's a store for alcoholics that sells long syringes to suck the booze out without making it look like the bottle's been opened. So I won't go into the gory details of of all the noise that was happening, the drinking that was taking place. Either she was being kicked out or I was being kicked out. There's a lot of in and out going on, a lot of fighting, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame, at least on my part. Promises I'll never drink again that I, you know, we believe, we want to believe every time there's a sober period. She was a periodic and I didn't know it. Later on when she got sober, she told me I was never periodic. I balanced myself out between the benches. And one day I decided, I said, I'm going to leave. I don't need this. We don't have any kids, not many assets. So I put my stuff in a little cloth bag, like Porky Pig, I'm teasing. It's a little bag. I'm walking out. And she said, if you leave, I will commit suicide. And I was so angry. And I'm not going to deny how dreadful suicide can be. I've lost some close friends to suicide. But I was so angry at the time, I said, that I want to watch so you don't botch it up. And I left, I should have kept walking and said, so turned around and followed her into the kitchen. And she is where about Barbara and my wife are sitting, and I am here, and there's a TV set behind me. I did not realize that in those five, ten seconds, her intentions changed from suicide to homicide. And there were dishes and knives flying at me with alarming velocity and accuracy. She should have been a pitcher in some freaking baseball team. And I'm dodging these as they're crashing by me because I don't want to go running out because if I do, then my neighbors will know 
and what will they say? It brings me to the point in my talk, why do alcoholics get anonymous after they get sober? <laughs> if, you, if you drank anonymously, it would save a lot of embarrassment. <laughs> I had a friend who said, I don't have a drinking problem, I have a stopping problem. So I said, anyway... Uh, moved to California, uh, she finally found sobriety. I mean, it's insane. I can't blame the alcoholic at all because in the grips of a disease, but I had no excuse. I really had no excuse. Here's a woman passed out on the floor. There's stuff coming out of her mouth that a six-month-old would have said that she's drunk. I had to go and inspect the garbage can to see what she'd been drinking. And I was such a snob, I would critique her choice of alcohol. Kmart champagne, you got to be kidding me. Red wine and she didn't let it breathe. It's got a twist. What kind of... And I went to my sponsor and I said, Don, I've been studying garbology. This is awful. And I think they sent sponsors to one upmanship school. And he said, that's nothing. I said, what do you mean? He said, I worked in the army. At night, I would have a flashlight in my mouth so that it would be dark and I would fix those jeeps so my hands would be free. And that came in handy because I could go through two garbage cans. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that you can go to an industrial supply store and buy a miner's helmet. So if you're into studying garbage, get yourself, be nice to yourself. So you'd have to hold a flashlight. It was when the twins came to my rescue, and I'm talking about Ann Landers and uh, Dear Abby. <laughs> but before that, I tried every trick, man. Schick Shadel, have you heard of Schick Shadel? I don't know who wrote, I'm sure it was, a, it was an alcoholic who wanted to do a number of Alanons. When I found, my, when the, this half bathroom is where all the cluelessness and the denial came crashing down, because my family had moved into the area, and I wanted to introduce the white sheep of the family to them. So, so we got in the car, and I smelled an excess of binaca and some alcohol. And I said, I can't take you in this condition. You're going to go back, and I'm going to go and see my family on my own. And she said, that's good. So I turn around, and she goes inside and rushes into this half bathroom, and something made me follow her. And as I look, she's trying to shut the door to this cabinet, and there's a 55-gallon drum of gallo wine. It was half a gallon, but that's what assumed these enormous proportions. See, it's always a problem of perception, right? So I see, so I look at it, and all of a sudden a voice in my head comes on and says, your wife's an alcoholic, your wife's an alcoholic, your wife's an alcoholic. It's like time stood still, and there's nothing moved. And a voice inside me said, you won't, we won't need you anymore because you'll, we won't need her anymore. We, you will think her thoughts, feel her feelings, experience her emotions, and you'll have conversations with her, and she's going to respond, but she doesn't have to be there. And I, and I said, God, you're crazy. That's not going to be me because I'm individuated. I don't need this. And that's exactly what happened for the next three and a half years. If she would breathe in a certain way, I knew she was going to drink. If she said good morning to me in a certain way, I knew she was going so enmeshed with what was going on. She was up, I was up. She was down, I was confused. It was just horrendous. So I'm watching this commercial, Schick Shadel said, if you have a drinking problem, the wife goes up to her husband and says, darling, you have a drinking problem. He says, sweetheart, you're so right and they go off to get treated. <laughs> so I believe in the truth in advertising. So, <laughs> so I walk up to my wife and say, darling, you have a drinking problem. She said, you're an idiot, I don't. So I figured I'd catch her in the act and she'll know I know she has a drinking problem. So I sit on a couch staring at an empty television set at night because I want to see the reflection of what's going on in the kitchen. I can't be watching TV, but I have to pretend I'm doing something else. So I do the crossword puzzle. And I'd be looking, and I'd see her drink, and I'd make this big exclamation, aha, like I've discovered a new law in physics or something. <laughs> and she'd take a drink, and she'd go up, and I'd move the bottles around, thinking when she gets up at 2 o'clock for her nursing <laughs> feed time, she'll know that I know because she won't find the bottle where she left it. Little did I know that alcoholics have their stash in 16,000 places. I actually was almost arrested for molesting my vacuum cleaner, because I was pawing it to see if she had hidden the bottle there. But I was saying, Ann Landers and Abby came to my rescue and said, if you're a mother or a father or a child or whatever, if an alcoholic, go to Al-Anon. So I finally go to my first Al-Anon meeting. I walk in, 
And as I mentioned, there were six women there. And I walked up to who, what looked like the, the kahuna of the meeting. And I said, how does this work? And she pointed me to the literature table in the distance. And she said, we work the 12 steps. And there's a pamphlet there. Go read it. So I'm a pseudo-intellectual. I walk up and I pick up the pamphlet thinking, oh, this is a cinch. You do the 12, you read them, and you know what it is. And there's some number shows up that tells you this is the magic formula for getting it sober. So I read the first step, admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I said, I'm not powerless over alcohol, and my life isn't unmanageable. Today, the first step is all about unmanageability to me. I don't think about the, you know, I say, I hear people in al say, well, I'm powerless over people, places, and things. And, and that almost sounds like a sense of helplessness to me because in the business world, you talk about how do you influence policy, how do you control the circle, blah, blah, blah. And so counterintuitive to say, I'm powerless over people, places, institutions. So rather than having a big debate with myself, I focus on the areas that are unmanageable in my life, and I look at it when I'm obsessed with someone else's behavior or I'm obsessed with a certain outcome or I'm obsessed with certain results, my life does become un unmanageable. So here I am, totally unmanageable in this room, and I'm saying I'm not unmanageable. That was pure, pure cluelessness and denial. So I move on to step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I'm the sane one. She's the insane one. Sane people don't promote suicide. Sane people don't contemplate homicide. I actually thought of killing my wife at least in 10 seconds or something. I had been reading a book by Alfred Hitchcock, and he described the perfect murder weapon. Some people are leaning forward. You won't find it here. You have to go up. It's, it's an icicle. So in, here I come from the land of Gandhi. You starve yourself, but you don't kill someone. Starvation was not an option. I was going to kill her. So they're going to take the icicle, stab her, take it to the basement, dig up the cement. I don't know nothing about concrete and what have you. But who cares, minor detail, and I was going to lay it to rest. This is all happening in nanoseconds. And then the thought occurred to me, my mother-in-law lives five blocks away. She'll find out dust on my wife's car, and she'll call the police. And kiddo, I didn't come all the way from Bombay to befriend some guy named Bubba in a Michigan prison. <laughs> Being traded for cigarettes was not an option. And I felt so guilty for even thinking this that I shared about it in my Friday night meeting. And a woman walked up to me and she said, oh, God, I'm so glad you shared that. I said, why? She said, my husband was passed out on the couch, and I was going to take a pillow and snuff him out. And I said, why did you not do it? And she said, I thought she would say, boy, that's a terrible act. It's immoral, blah, blah, blah. Instead, she said, oh, they would have found cotton in his nose, and they would have known I've done it. <laughs> and we call alcoholics self-centered and self selfish. I think we are worse in some ways. I think Al-Anon's, and I say this in general because of what I hear and see, and including my, we're more arrogant because we don't have the disease. I hear people say, that alcoholic, that's such alcoholic thinking. Well, certainly that's such Al-Anon thinking too, man. Come on. We've, generalizations bother me. So generally speaking, I don't like generalizations. I know that's it. <laughs> So step two, um, I'm not insane. I moved to step three. Came to believe, I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I said, wait a minute, God helps those who help themselves. Why give to God that which he's given to me in the first place? That would make God an Indian giver. I can say that. So I moved on to step four. Took a fearless and personal moral inventory. I was perfect. Nothing wrong with me. I came in without any defects of character. Now I have many defects. This bloody program doesn't work right. So I'm going to step five. Admitted to God, to myself, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Oh, that goes against image management. A, nothing's wrong. B, I'm not going to tell you about it. Are you nuts? Six and seven, which are the underpinnings of my program today, I glossed over because seven had a word in it that was alien to my vocabulary. It said humbly. I was so humble, I was actually very proud of it. I moved on to eight and nine. Made, a, you know, uh, made amends to people or um, what have you. I said, uh, aid is uh, uh, made a list of people I'd harmed. They deserved it. Nine, when are they going to make amends to me? When is she going to make amends to me? So it was all about me, 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 me. I was spiritually awakened in about three and a half minutes. I said, enough is enough. I looked at her. I said, now what? <laughs> and she said, keep coming back. And I said, Why? She said, because you're sick. And she said it with a lot of emphasis. She must have been psychic.
I did. Every six weeks, I'd go back. <laughs> How can you change by going to class every six weeks? It's really going to class to learn a new way of living and thinking, new way of entirely changing your perspective. I know when I was so focused on, is it a disease? They, I hope people here don't do this that they did in my first meeting. They, they compared it to cancer and con, con, compared it to diabetes. That if she had cancer, you wouldn't leave her. If you had diabetes, you wouldn't leave her. So I walk out of the room and my head is now broken up into six different committees and they're having a debate. And one side said, if she has a cancer-like disease, why is she seeking chemotherapy? If she has a disease-like diabetes, why not insulin therapy? It wasn't until I got to my first Al-Anon meeting in Chicago area, I'd, moved, I'd been transferred, walk into my first Al-Anon meeting and I brought up this disease thing and a guy looked at me and said, if you want to understand this disease stuff, go to that literature table. I said, there goes the literature table again. And he said, there's the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the Al-Anon, on the Al-Anon literature table. And I was surprised, but they said that now I learned that we only use conference-approved literature and all that, but they had taken a group conscience to decide to have the text in there. That's the basic text. And I've heard old-time Al-Anon speakers say that uh, there's such a big fuss about the big book in a lot of media. And I'm not suggesting you have it in your meetings. I'm just telling you my story. This is what happened in the Chicago area. So I read the big book of AA, and I came to the understanding that this disease transcends any physiological and physical definitions of disease and psychological definitions of disease. It's so confounding even to people like Carl Jung and Silkworth were unable to grasp the disease part of it that two people had to get together and just talk about and discover how to deal with it. And neuroscience has determined it, and, and, and chemists have, yes, it is indeed a biochemical problem. It is a neurological problem. When I say problem, just the way it's structured inside. They've done brain scans, and they found out that alcoholics and drug addicts have different neuroreceptors and different paths or what have you. I totally understand that. But to understand why a person drinks, and I asked a friend of mine, Rich, I, he and I play golf occasionally, and I said, is there a moment of choice? Is that that moment of decision before you decide if you're going to drink or not? He's been sober 25 years. And he said, Ajit, you and I can walk into a bar after a golf game. You can have a couple of beers, and you'll know where you'll end up. He says, I have a couple of beers. I won't know where I'll end up. And he says, so I know that, and that's why I don't take my first beer when I've finished golf. I have a soda or a glass of water. And that made sense to me. So here I'm reading the book, book, I've done all that. Now I'm getting into the literature. See, this is where it got crazy for me because once I started reading the literature, started reading the, the whole thing and understanding the steps, I thought I knew the steps. So someone would talk to me about the fourth step. I could go ad nauseum on it. I could talk about the sixth. And so I could talk a lot about it, but nothing was going on. Until my wife then got sober in 1983 at 8.02 p.m. at the Uni University United Methodist Church on the corner of Jeffrey and University at Culver and Irvine. And things were hunky-dory. But something was not right because we started talking divorce in the first year. And friends of ours came and said, everyone, a lot of people in AA decide to change everything in their first year. Just hang in there, guys. You'll be okay. And we did. And we started popping babies after that. Justin and Kayla, my twins, showed up in 1985. Well, thank you. And followed by that, Corey showed up in 87. We had moved to California, Irvine at that time. Thank you. Great program, both AA and Al-Anon in Orange County. We have over 120 Al-Anon meetings in a given week and 10 times more AA meetings. It should be the other way around, but that's what it is. And uh, just before my last child came, Nathan, uh, about eight years into her sobriety, my former wife said, uh, that she had been having these dreams and impressions and memories of the past. And it came out that very nasty things had happened to her in her childhood by her father and by a priest and by an uncle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the dynamics of our relationship started to change. Uh, what was a reasonably decent physical, intimate relationship became a non-physical relationship. And eventually, we were sleeping in separate rooms and... Uh, Seven years into this slowly deteriorating situation, she got up one morning and said, this marriage is over. I'd been praying for a divorce because the thing was so awful. 
Uh, we couldn't, I couldn't touch her. I, we couldn't talk to each other. She, just everything was going to hand the help us. She was sleeping in separate rooms. Here we have kids. And for some reason, I got really upset. And I, O.J. Simpson showed up at me, and I took a cleaver, and I'm back, banging up on the kitchen table. I'm throwing her books around. I'm just going nuts. <coughs> Excuse me. And I decided to sue her. I went to see an attorney and uh, sat across from her. I wanted to prove to the world that she was incapable of raising children. Now we had four children. Incapable of owning a house, blah, 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 the whole nine yards. As I'm talking to him, my sponsor showed up. God rest his soul, Dean was a father figure to me and a sponsor. And his definition of step one was, what is the problem? Identify the problem. See, I realized one day as I'm driving from a men's group, I go to a wonderful men's group, and I attend groups, uh, mixed meetings as well. And it, the question about acceptance, in a one-day-at-a-time book, it says acceptance is admitting the existence of a reality. Simple. And I'm driving, and my mind says, wait a minute, isn't your reality contingent upon your perception of the reality? And I said, yes. And it says, so if your perceptions are off, then what is your reality? I was having an LSD moment, and I've never used LSD. But then I recognized my reality truly is contingent upon how I view it. How I'm looking at you is, is not you, is what my impressions of you are, based on what I'm collecting in terms of the data that's coming in. It has nothing to do with real reality. And I'm reading this thing by Richard Rowan. talks about early Christians were very much like Buddhists. They did not cast their shadow upon reality. They accepted what was in the moment as it is. And that's what the beauty of this program is. We live one day at a time. And the early Christians did not have churches, did not do sermons, did not do any of that. In fact, they were called desert fathers and mothers, Abbas and Amas. And a lady walked up to an Abba and said, Abba, what do I have to do to find, um, find heaven? And because they didn't have the concept of heaven and hell in terms of the duality. And he looked at her, he was twining rope, and he said, I'm doing it right now. Which means he was fully committed to the moment in conscious presence. And that's where he was. And so my reality is confounded by how I view people, because I'm judging constantly. And I have the gift of rationalization, which is awful. I don't judge. I make observations. I'm not sarcastic. I'm blessed with acerbic wit. So how can you clear yourself if you're constantly disguising it with these fancy means of explaining away defects of character? And so my sponsor taught me this whole process of Alan on the 12 steps era is, the, is pulling away the masks, one painful mask at a time, to come face to face with truly what's been happening inside. So here I am confronted with this one, the sponsor shows up, so what's your problem? I said, I do not want to lose my kids. And he says, what makes you think you're going to lose your kids? Because my reality is I'm going to lose my kids because every woman wants the maximum child support she can get by taking 100% custody. That's what I've heard. That's what I listened. So I know my wife is that way. And he said, how do you know? And I said, I don't. He says, why don't you ask? This is all happening in my head. My sponsor's talking. So I walk out and I call my wife and I said, I will not take you to court on one condition. She said, what's that? I said, I don't want to lose the kids. She said, you're an idiot. We have four. I don't want them to myself. <laughs> my divorce cost me 700 bucks, all the paperwork. We decided we were not going to have custody issues. We were going to parent jointly. My kids have been blessed as a consequence of that. I'm not going to tell you that they're perfect kids. They're, no one is perfect. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful kids. I love them dearly, and they love me back dearly. I know that. And my former wife was actually living in the house for the longest time that we both owned, so the kids could all graduate from that house. And then she decided not to move, so eventually we had to go to court. And my present wife really helped me through the process because I tend to be this I-don't-care attitude when inside I'm caring and I'm upset, but this outside and. My wife brought me to the truth that, hey, this mattered, and I need to take care of myself because I was being taken advantage of. But we still do not have an acrimonious relationship. Through the process of the legal issues, I did not have any ill will to this woman, and that's the gift of this program. So here I am walking out. We've done this thing, and we saw a divorce therapist. <laughs> Marriage therapist might have been better, perhaps, but it wasn't meant to be. 
And the divorce therapist said, do not get involved with women, period, for a year. I said, woman, I'm moving to the island of Lesbos in Greece. Where <laughs> there is an island of Lesbos which is founded by lesbians, but that's not true anymore. I said, so I'll be around women, but not with them. And she smiled. She said, you'll get a two-by-four across your face if you get into a relationship. And as I said, I'm a master of rationalization. She said, you have to go through this and go through the process of getting rid of all the baggage before you meet someone else. So I moved out on July 4th, 1996. In August of 1996, I walk into my Friday night meeting, and there's this woman sitting, and she's making flirtatious eyes at me and smiling at me and all that. I knew I'd known this woman. For some reason, there was a seat only next to her. Now, this is angel number two that comes into my life, and I'll tell you why. I sit next to her, and I can see there's an energy going on, and I ask her out, and she said yes. And I said, geez, you know, I've been separated for seven years at the house, two years sleeping separate. So I have moved on, I tell myself. We decided to go out, and it became a very, very intense relationship. But thank God it was for a very short time. And I say thank God for a reason. I'm really grateful that she came into my life and gave me everything that was lacking in my marriage for the last X number of years, physically, emotionally, every which way. So I really got lost again. I did not get into Ajit. I was so caught up in this relationship. And again, you know, people would look at me, oh, my God, you got a beautiful woman next to you, and what's, what's going on with you? You've just come out of the divorce, and you're great, blah, blah. I wasn't even divorced. I was separated. And as the divorce therapist had suggested, a two-by-four hit me about eight months later when the woman decided to leave me. <coughs> And I was so devastated, even more so than I was with the divorce. And I walked up to my sponsor. I said, do you have a gun? He said, why? I said, I'm too much of a god to shoot myself. Will you kill me because I'm in too much pain? Instead, he said, when was the last time you've been alone? I said, I can't recall. My sponsor never told me what to do, how to do, when to do. He always would be there to offer suggestions, to reason things out, what have you. But this time, he gave me a very clear directive. He said, why don't you do a fourth step differently this time? I want you to lock yourself up for a couple of days and use the page 345 in your courage to change. There are four questions. The first question is, who am I? The second question is, what are my values? I'd been to Catholic school 12 years in India where I knew the values were honesty, fidelity, blah, 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 but I never really practiced any of them to the best of my abilities because I had veered and wandered many times. He said, I'll change that for you because you're a thinking guy, not a doing guy. So we're going to ask you, what do you value and how do you show it? The next question is, what traits of character do you wish to keep about you? And the last one was, what traits of character do you wish to get rid of? So it was November of 1997, Thanksgiving time, I locked myself up. I'd done some readings before that. My therapist had recommended a book called How to Be an Adult, written by a recovering, I think he's a recovering alcoholic, the guy. Beautiful book, hitting me between the eyes in terms of the kind of people I brought into my life and the energies I pulled into my being. So I read that, and I read another book called Conversations with God. A bunch of the stuff just to kind of get ready for this thing, and I'm reading Al-Anon literature, and I locked myself up, and we had pages in those days, if you remember those little things. I shut that off, cell phones off, TV off, and I told my wa former wife, I said, please have the kids with you. Don't send them to, to the house this time for a couple of days. I started to write, who am I? See, I denied who I was. I wanted to be James Bond. But it's very difficult to walk up and say, hi, my name is Shahani. He doesn't have that cachet like, hi, my name is Bond, James Bond. <laughs> because I... My family was refugees from now what is called Pakistan. It was all India. And so we had, I was born in Bombay, but they had come. And with that, there was a lot of shame and embarrassment because they'd left all their wealth behind. But the community that I belonged to did extremely well as refugees. So they were the source of envy for a lot of people. So we were targeted in many ways in terms of... Uh, pejoratives and what have you. So I didn't want to be who I was because of that. In school, people would tease you for your 
who you were. I just wanted to be someone else. And so I did not really get to know. There was no introspective work going on because I had this mask around me that kept me from realizing who I was. So I'm writing this, and I'm really angry, angry at my father, tears flying out because he didn't play cricket with me. He didn't play ball with my father didn't know what end of the bat to hold for God's sake his job of that generation did not say I love you they made sure you're closing your back roof of your head went to school had a decent meal that was their business angry at my sister I mean I didn't realize the victim that was there was just pouring out on that piece of paper and I'm raging and a friend of mine told me I almost had a near psychotic experience with that um, with the doctor being there what are my values and who do I value and how do I value? How do you value my children? How do you value your business? How do you value Alanon? I'm writing all this stuff and I'm going through the traits of character I wish to keep, traits of character wish. I did not believe I had any insecurities, any feelings of envy, any of that. None of the baser instincts belonged to me, but here they were pouring out like crazy because the truth was coming out. It was Friday evening when I was done. I heard an air speaker put it about as well as anyone. He said, I had my feet firmly planted in midair. And for the longest time, that's what had happened. That Friday night, thud, my feet hit the ground, and Darth Vader showed up. That welcome to the dark side. And I'm so very grateful that I was able to integrate the not-so-good-about-me with the good-about-me. And I love, I, I get this meditation from uh, the Richard Rohr Center for whatever, and I, you know, I feel free to talk about how this program has led me to integrate some of the stuff that connects with the program, where he talks about St. Francis. St. Francis is, is, is a favorite of mine. We have that whole reading in the back of our uh, uh, Al-Anon literature. It's a bookmark, St. Francis of Assisi Prayer. And St. Francis literally thrived on the fact that he had defects because he did not want to achieve any kind of perfection. And to him, a defect of character was a blessing because that made him realize the need for being in connection with the power greater than himself, power that he called God or whatever he called it. And I'm grateful today that I have defects of character. I was really ticked off at my wife's sponsor who said, you know what, you're a codependent. You have codependency issues. See, my wife and I met each other in Al-Anon in 2005. No, she didn't bat any eyelids at me or what have you. We were friends, and we got invited. I got invited to a party. I don't know if you know Scott R. He's dead now, but he's an AA speaker. His wife invited me his 20th AA birthday, and I invited Vicky to go with me and her friend. Her friend decided not to show up, and Vicky and I went to make a long story short. What ended up just a friendly date turned out to be a romantic date, and we started to see each other. But in the years that we were together, both had brought baggage. She brought trust issues, and I brought all kinds of issues that I wasn't even aware of. And we broke up three times during those 10 years. And every time we broke up, it was a spiritual shift. So that's angel number three in one sense, because I realized, as I'd read someplace, but I did not, it did not resonate at the time, that we're all addicted to something. And this one said, most of us are addicted to certain patterns of thought. And I did not realize that an element of my relationship with my now wife was addictive. It was a need rather than a want. And I didn't recognize it because I know how to twist my things by rationalizing. So every time we broke up, it was the last time when she broke up with me, I looked at myself in the mirror. I said, I am okay if she never, ever comes back into my life. I'm totally free right now. I'm in pain. I'm not going to deny that, but I'm totally free. And I think finally God said, now you're ready for a real relationship. And I, in fact, I had proposed to her and she had accepted that she broke off and she returned the ring to me. And I thought when we got back, I just hand the ring over to her. She said, no, you got to repropose. I said, repropose? What do you mean? She said, yep, I'm not accepting the ring unless you tell me that you want to ask me to marry you again. And I was telling a sponsor of mine who had gone through the same thing. I said, so are you going to repropose to your lady? He said, what do you mean repropose? We've done it once. I said, you don't understand women. Repropose. <laughs> so we've been blissfully married since November 1. And um, we are confronted with addiction in our home. And uh, it's a whole different story. You know, it's easy to detach when you're not 
dealing with addiction or what have you, when you're not in a relationship. Now I'm in the relationship of the intimate of most intimate of relationships. And our my stepson, her son, has moved in with us and he was brutally stabbed in two thousand thirteen. He got into a fight with a with one of his best friends while under the influence of LSD and cocaine. <clears throat> And the young man decided he didn't have an addiction, and his usage then became just over the weekends. And then we discovered it's a daily thing with um, mostly TCA, THC. And it turned out that it's not just THC, it also does uh, ketamine, which is a horse pill and some other stuff. I'm pretty much detached from the young man, but I found myself not detaching with compassion. It was bordering on apathy, like I don't give a shit. You, this is what you want to do, this is your bloody life, go do it. But I'm recognizing that's not detachment, it's just distancing, and I don't want to be distanced. My issue is more with my, with my wife in the sense to watch her in pain and watch her struggle. She has 13 years in, in program, and I heard her say, I cannot be experiencing this now that I'm in program 13 years. And I was laughing. I said, it took me 17 years to come to that realization that you never, ever not have that. My sponsor used to say, just because you're in program doesn't mean your thinking doesn't get screwy. It simply means when it gets screwy, you know where to go. So I keep coming back to deal with my screwy thinking. So we're dealing with that at home right now. And hopefully this program will sustain us both and walk us through the whole process. Difficult is at times to watch my wife and the pain that she has because it's a son, it's a child. I don't have that connection. We had that conversation. I said, I cannot sit there and talk with you about this in any deep way. You need to be doing this with your sponsor only because I don't have a frame of reference. Even though I have a now 30-year-old son, he was 23 when he got a second DUI. And his mother says, he said he was going to move to a university campus, and his mother said, and you cannot drink. And I started to laugh, and he jumped up and he said, Mom, I'm not alcoholic. If I decide I'm alcoholic, it'll come from within. And I looked at him, I said, son, I'm already going where I need to go, and if you're alcoholic, you know where to go with your mother. He had asked me, he said, I have to go to these AA classes. How do I introduce myself? I said, you can get up and say, I'm Justin. I'm a member of DAM. He says, what's that? Drunks against mad mothers. He, he didn't think that was too funny. <laughs> Today he tells me he's he does drink, but sometimes to excess, I'm sure. But he doesn't live with me, and I love my son, and I, and I accept him for who he is. And I know that, you know, the beauty about this deal is we were listening to this guy who is who was a Lutheran but became a Buddhist, and he writes books, and he said something that was a pure detachment. He said. I deal with a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts, he said in this talk. And he said, and some of them in their darkest of moments find connection with spirit. Who are we to interrupt the process? And that hit me between the eyes. I don't know when this young man is going to connect with the God of his own misunderstanding or beyond comprehension. That's between him and his God. Who am I to stop that process or interrupt it or create a crisis to make it happen? We have a beautiful saying in Al-Anon, we don't create a crisis, but we don't prevent one in the happening. So anyway, I'm done with my fourth step. I'm there now doing my fifth, my sponsor, and I moved down. Six and seven have been my saving grace. Six, where I make a list of they fix a character that I'm getting ready. And I was fighting that step for the longest time because I thought that I had to find payoffs for holding on to my... I had to be totally ready to get rid of a defective character. And then I reread it in this book by Richard Rohr where he says you become entirely ready for God to remove. I don't have to do all the grunt work. It's a paradox of the 12 steps. Paradox of step six is I do all the work, then I stop. It's God's turn now to take over. And I become entirely ready to say, God, you have it. So today, six and seven have been the underpinning of my program where I not only let go of defects of character to God, and they keep coming back. And I, my sponsor reminded me, remove is not to extinguish. It's simply moving someplace else. Remove is moved. So it's always there. But if I do the do's, I don't have to worry too much about not doing the don'ts. Eight has been a wonderful trip as well. I read this thing about guilt. It tells a story about an ant that met an elephant in the circus, and they fell in love and they got married. 
And the night they consummated their marriage, the elephant died. The next morning, the ant looks heavenward and said, Oh God, for one night of pleasure, I have to spend a lifetime burying it. (laughs) That's the impact of guilt. Beating myself up for something I've done. My God has already forgiven me because my God never judged me in the first place. There's a beautiful saying in one of the ancient readings that says, The actions of mankind are left untouched upon God because I don't have to worry about this is my existence if I commit mistakes and I do some things. My program gives me the tools in step nine to make amends. I have distinguished for myself the difference between saying sorry and making restitution. My four-year-old taught me that. He said, Dad, you always say sorry, but you never change what you're doing. It hit me like I should have aborted him at age four, but I didn't. Didn't realize he was my sponsor at the time, too. So... (laughs) Today I know just saying sorry doesn't mean anything. I have to make restitution. It's been a long journey, and the steps have been my my savior in the process. I have cleared up my thinking somewhat so I don't focus on people so much. The more I've accepted myself, the more I accept you, the more I feel comfortable in my own skin. This has been the process for me. I heard an AD in my Al-Anon meeting explain disease because I fought the word disease for Al-Anon. I said, we don't have a disease. And she explained, she said, disease is dis-ease, the inside's not matching the outsides. And that resonated. Today, I feel more comfortable. My insides match my outsides more than it ever has. I'm not going to tell you that I reached it. I asked my sponsor, how do I know when I've arrived in Al-Anon? He said, when you twice as good as your wife thinks you are and half as good as you think you are. So I'm still the work of progress, and it's taking time. I think I'll finish with this. It's a story about the footwork we have to do in our program. It's this guy, he goes to this wonderful banquet. He's having a phenomenal time watching people, he's thinking he's going to have this wonderful meal. But waiters and waitresses are bustling by him, and no one is waiting on him. And he's really getting upset. 15, 20, 30 minutes go by. Now he's steaming until he comes to the realization that he's at a buffet. <laughs> So this Al-Anon, AA, all these sorts of buffets, we have to get up, we have to do the footwork. And we can't, at least for me, I can't wait. I don't like the word, oh, I'm black belting the program or what have you. There is no black belt here. There is no fight here. There's no, this program is a program of surrender. Lady from tr- Toronto, she's a former nun. I don't know if she's spoken here or not. Uh, she's an AA speaker. She put it beautifully. She said, Michelangelo always knew the Pieta was in the stone. He chipped away at the excess. And this program has been chipping away, and it's worked hard on me. I'm like the cliffside that the ocean has just been battering against, and it's taken a long time because this thing gets in the way. Uh, the rationalizations, the intellectualizations, the conversation that happened here, sometimes there's a constriction that does not allow the program to seep in. But as I keep coming back, even when I get into a state of complacency, and my sponsor reminded me, you will get into a state of complacency because you've heard the same spiritual pablum in those meetings. You've heard the same crap. You'll say that to yourself. Sometimes you'll feel that the only wise thing that's coming out of the program is out of your mouth, and that's arrogance, which means I have to go back to the basics. So we are back doing basics. My wife and I work a program together and independently. We, uh, we go to a, uh, a sessions with some friends to work on a step. We also go to a couples meeting, which is designed for working coupleships because, you know, she's a feeling person, I'm a thinking person. And when my wife sits and talks about feelings in the past, I would explain to her that feelings are based on perceptions. And if you alter your perception, your feelings will change. Who cares? She's experiencing a feeling. And I had to literally, and I'll finish on this because this program is really altered my relationships. It's a program for relationships. My third son, Corey, was most affected by the divorce and what have you because he was babysitting the youngest. At nine years of age, he was caretaking a six-year-old. He's very, very angry. And he grew up, he started to live with me. And one day he looked at me, he said, I am so angry that when I leave you, I will never, ever set foot in this house or see you again. And I had him sit down with me. I said, If you're this angry at me, just pour it out. Tell me what you're so angry about. He says, I'll think about it. So he came one day, he said, I'm ready. He sat down and he gave it to me with both barrels. Now, in the past, this man would have given him 16 different reasons why his feelings were not valid, like I did to my wife. You're wrong, this, that. 
something in me made me just sit and listen. And I looked at him, I said, some of the stuff I can remember that you're telling me, but some of the stuff I don't. But that does not mean it did not happen. And I apologize for everything, but I can't change the past. I heard an Alan speaker beautifully said, we cannot change the past. We can only change our relationship with the past. I said, I'm willing to move forward if you are. He said, I'll think about it. I said, you son of a... In my head, I didn't say anything to him. Three days later, he came and said, I'm ready, Dad. And he gave me a hug. And today, he works with me. And that's the beauty of this relationship. The same thing with my wife. When she broke up with me, now a sponsor of mine, he wasn't sponsored then. As I was walking by him, he said, oh, my God, Ajit, my sponsors asked me to do a third step on my relationship. Bing. Went home and I started to write. Some of the things that Vicky had seen about me had given her false impressions, but they were very real. And as I wrote, I said, oh, my God, if I were in her shoes, I might draw the same conclusions. This is the gift the program has given me that despite this veneer of arrogance that is there with me and the ego and all that, moments of light come through when I can see things from someone else's perspective and connect differently than I've ever done in the past. And I'm so grateful to this program for that. Long ways to go yet and long trips. So I come to the buffet and I do get up and help myself. I have a sponsor of the program and I sponsor people now differently. I don't tell them what to do unless they ask for specific direction. And I'm grateful for all that. I'm grateful to you again for letting me take an hour of your time or more. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Ocean City is beautiful. Good to come back. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.